Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, this is Chris Safarova. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Before we start today's interview, I have a gift for you. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies, free download. You can go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. So it is F-I-R-M-S consulting.com forward slash overall approach. And today we have with us Moro Gulian. Moro is one of the most original thinkers at the Wharton School where he's a professor of management and vice dean for the MBA for executives program. And uh, Moro is an expert on global market trends. He's a sought after speaker and consultant. Moro, so great to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Chris. Moro, so you have such an interesting story. You were born in Spain and then you went to the US to do your doctorate and then you stayed there. You went to MIT, Wharton now. Maybe you could share with us briefly your story and how you ended up becoming a futurist on top of all your other responsibilities that you have. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Uh, So I was born and raised in Spain. I attended uh, school and uh, university in Spain. And uh, I was eager, you know, to um, go abroad. At the time, Spain was not uh, such an open country as it is today. Uh, Very few Spaniards actually left the country. Uh, but I knew that uh, it would be enriching to have a foreign experience. So I, I came to the United States. I, as you said, I did my PhD and then I got a, a good job at MIT and I stayed. And then four years later, after I got married, my wife moved to Philadelphia. So then I moved to Wharton. And uh, I've been at Wharton now for 25 years, except for two years that I was at Cambridge, University of Cambridge in the UK, uh, where I was the dean of the business school. But now I'm at Wharton and I'm a professor and a vice dean. And essentially what motivates me uh, in terms of becoming a futurist is that uh, what fascinates me is how can we use data? How can we use evidence uh, to try to anticipate what the future might bring? Because it's obviously very important to be prepared for the future. So uh, I find it fascinating to think about these issues. That is such an interesting journey and um, exciting to see what's going on, uh, what is ahead as well. So when it comes to being successful as a leader in an organization, there's, of course, demand for analytical skills, but also social skills like ability to to communicate, work in teams. There's also demand for emotional intelligence. What skills do you think will become the most important 10 years from now for someone to be a successful leader within a large organization? Well, I think uh, social skills are becoming more important than technical skills. And I say that because of now with AI and other technology tools, you know, the technical information, the technical knowledge you can get, uh, but the social skills, how you uh, relate to other people, how do you manage, how do you lead a team, uh, those are harder to get. And I think uh, the world of uh, uh, business and the world of work is essentially evolving towards social skills more so than technical skills. And uh... A part of your job right now is to prepare students for some jobs that don't yet exist. New categories of jobs will emerge. How do you go about it as a school and you personally? 
Well, it's very difficult, of course. And that's the trouble with educational institutions of all sorts, that uh, you cannot be training or educating students for the jobs of today, uh, because those people are going to be you know, working for, for a long period of time. So you really have to make some uh, bets as to what you think is going to grow. So for example, at the Wharton School, we have made a very big bet on both social skills and analytics. So not so much the ability to invent new ways of analyzing data, but rather um, how do you become very good at asking uh, the right quantitative questions? And of course, answering them with available methods. So we're emphasizing those two things, but it's obviously very difficult to uh, anticipate the future. In my own classes, um, what I do is I always challenge the students to tell me what they think is going to happen next, uh, you know, regarding the topic that we're discussing that day of class. So it's obviously very difficult to predict the future. Uh, you make a lot of mistakes, uh, but uh, we can't help it. It's just like with the weather. I mean, we want to know whether it's going to rain tomorrow or not. Uh, so we engage in prediction and uh, sometimes the predictions are not accurate, but we have to live with that. It is a challenging thing that you are doing. And your students are lucky that you're thinking about it because not every educator actually thinks about it and takes it seriously. In working with so many students and seeing how they how they go into the world and, and great things they do, I wonder what you noticed is the most important quality or skill that usually predicts someone's success? Uh, I think it's uh, by far asking the right questions. Uh, because once you have asked the right question, um, you know, there are methods, there are theories to guide uh, you in terms of getting a solution. But in the midst of so much uncertainty, in the midst of so much complexity in the world, it's very difficult to ask uh, the right question. And, you know, this always reminds me of what Pablo Picasso, the painter, said in the 1960s. He said, computers are useless. They can only give you answers, right? Uh, so really, the hard thing is to ask the right questions. And by the way, that's what a leader in an organization, that's what an executive in an organization always has to do, ask the right questions. What would you recommend someone to do to become better at asking questions? To know well, the I think, questions to ask. I think, uh, you know, the name of the game today in the world, in organizations, in markets, is to connect the dots. You have to be able to connect the dots because there are so many things going on and everything is interconnected with everything else. So how do you develop that skill? The way I do it, uh, it may not necessarily be the best, but the way I do it is, before I go to sleep, um, I always dedicate 15 minutes to reading on my phone about some topic that I know very little about. So for example, I may read about archeology span one day, another day about photography, another day about uh, the history of uh, epidemics. And you know, if you have the discipline of doing this every day, just 15 minutes, then you will notice that after a few months, you start making connections, you start seeing things that before you didn't see. That's such a good tip because all of us, Everyone who is listening to this, we are very driven people. We work really hard, but not enough of us paying attention to areas that are outside of our immediate focus. Mm -hmm. And there's so much to say about, especially in consulting, when I was in consulting, there's so many things you, you learn because you go from project to project and sometimes it is in different industries and then you can pull things together and connect the dots that other people can't because they are focusing just on one area. Building on what we were discussing in terms of students preparing for jobs that don't yet exist, I wonder what is your opinion on what do you feel is the core problem right now with modern business education at the graduate level? 
Well, I think uh, the big challenge is whether business schools at the graduate level for masters, for example, MBAs, we can remain relevant. And, you know, if we don't change both uh, the knowledge that we're conveying and also the pedagogy, the way in which we are conveying that knowledge to the students, I think we could become irrelevant uh, because younger generations these days, they want to learn in a different way than the way I learned, for example. And of course, there are all of these new things like social skills and technical skills that are now very important that we have to teach. So unless we adapt and we adjust very quickly, we're going to become irrelevant. And, uh, uh, you know, it is a, a tall order because sometimes it's very difficult to ask faculty to change the way they do things or the way they teach or what they teach because they've been doing it for so long. How do you go about it? How do you able to motivate, encourage your faculty to actually change? Well, we um, put in place incentives. For example, student evaluations um, play a very important role and nobody wants to have uh, bad student evaluations. So once you do that, um, you know, all faculty members, they want to do well because they want to, uh, you know, be seen as uh, successful and effective. But the other thing is, uh, you know, you give them opportunities to learn also. So, for example, at Wharton, for 20 years now, we've had a, an international trip where instead of students, we take faculty and we take them to a part of the world they've never been to so that perhaps they can start to learn something new and they can start making connections and they can, uh, in that way, then make their courses better. That is such an interesting idea because when I was doing my MBA, we had an international trip as an optional course that you can take but I never heard a school having it for faculty that mm -hmm. is very interesting what are some of the uh, just interesting since you brought it up what are some of the things that happened as part of those trips maybe some insights or something surprised you that you didn't thought would happen or something something you learned yeah so I'll tell you a little anecdote right uh, so for example I went on one of those trips uh, to South Korea I had never been to South Korea and as a result of that experience, I actually started to do research on South Korea and specifically on the Chebol, on these very large diversified groups that they have in, in South Korea. And I remember being at a dinner, uh, many, this was many years ago, and uh, we had the chairman of Deu. Uh, this was a Chebol that went bankrupt, but at the time it was very big, uh, you know, Chebol, Deu. And uh, I was sitting to his left and to his right, uh, there was also from Wharton, a finance professor. And the finance professor kept on always asking him, you know, how they thought about uh, the uh, rate of return on their investment projects. How did they, uh, you know, calculate the cost of capital? Uh, how much did they have to um, pay their uh, or remunerate their shareholders in order to be able to continue uh, being successful and so on and so forth. And, you know, after a while, um, the chairman of Hadeu got a little bit impatient because the finance professor was asking him all of those questions from uh, an American perspective, not really understanding the South Korean context. And the chairman of Deo uh, just said uh, something like, I don't remember the exact words, but he almost more or less said, uh, you, you have to understand, you know, he was talking to the finance professor, that here in Korea, we all try to get free money. <laughs> so as you know, this chevel grew because uh, the government was subsidizing loans to the point that most of those loans had negative interest rates, um, real interest rates. And that was in exchange, of course, for meeting certain export targets. So the government was willing to give money for free to the biggest chevel as long as they met certain export targets. And of course, that changes completely the situation. And no American firm has that um, you know, possibility available to it. That is very, very interesting. Mauro, so your latest book, 
was on perennials. And uh, so maybe let's talk about it and let's start with defining what the term means because some of our listeners may not be familiar. Absolutely. So perennials is both, uh, you know, the individuals who essentially don't act and don't think their age. So they decide when to work, when to learn, when to retire, when to uh, take a break, not necessarily depending on their age, but rather when it's best for them, when it's most uh, adaptive or better in terms of uh, making sure that they are aligned with the environment. Uh, because again, technology is changing very quickly and economic conditions are also changing very quickly. But I also refer in the book to the perennial mindset. And I think that's more of a social thing. It's the idea that uh, we need uh, more flexibility, uh, that in order to adapt to all of those changes, we need a new way of life, a perennial way of life. And the most single most important thing in that way of life is the mindset. We need to change our mindset. We don't work so that we can retire. We work to enjoy it. We don't learn so that we can work. We learn also for, for knowledge sake. Uh, and in any event, we have to be lifetime, lifelong learners, not just our learners when we're young. So that's the perennial mindset. That is what the book is about. And uh, how would someone know if they have perennial mindset? Could you give people maybe a, a test they can do? Well, I can, I can for example, tell you that uh, if uh, somebody listening is only thinking about retiring, that is not the perennial mindset, right? Uh, if that person, uh, you know, would never go back to school again because uh, he or she already learned everything uh, then at school and doesn't want to waste the time, prefers to continue working, that's not, not the perennial mindset either. So the perennial, once again, is somebody who, depending on the circumstances, depending on what's going on, they do one thing or the other, but not necessarily as a function of their age. It's very interesting. As I was reading your book, it was clear to me that I have perennial mindset. I really, I don't think, I, I don't think I ever go into it. I don't really feel, think of myself as a certain age. And I, there are a lot of benefits, of course, but possibly the key advantages of the sequential model of life was its predictability. You play, mm -hmm. you learn, you work, you rest. What do you think are some of the major challenges for people with perennial mindset? Well, look, uh, the perennial uh, mindset is something that is emerging now. Still very few people are doing that. Still very few organizations or companies are buying into it. But the older model, the sequential model of life, uh, you know, uh, started 120 years ago when we introduced universal schooling and we introduced uh, pensions. And therefore, then life became uh, separated into four different stages. First, we would play, then we would learn, then we would work, and finally, we would retire. And it was a way of living our lives that was very efficient and very good for men. But quite frankly, it didn't really work for women, right? Uh, not at all. And we need to change it. We, we need more of a perennial mindset precisely for that reason, for example, to help women out. Uh, but we also need it because, you see, uh, there's a, a lot of people here in the United States, I estimate in the book that about uh, 60 million people one way or another, they fail to make the transition from one stage, stage to the next. For example, we have high school dropouts or we have teenage mothers. And all of those people, they suffer quite a bit because they cannot keep pace with the sequential model of life. And they get sidelined by the economy. They get uh, jobs that are not as good and so on and so forth. So we also need to change the system for them. We need to engage. We need to embrace the perennial mindset uh, for the benefit of women, for the benefit of uh, teenage mothers, for the benefit of high school dropouts, for the benefit for everybody who essentially fell behind. Fertility has declined. And in many countries, women have far fewer than two children over their lifetime on average. 
And of course, it's falling short of population replacement. How does this impact the move toward perennial mindset? Well, look, um, the decline in fertility has been driven for, uh, with, uh, for, by many reasons. Uh, one of them is that people have moved from the countryside to the city. Another one, of course, is that we have contraceptive methods, uh, values and cultural expectations have changed. And most importantly, women now have, uh, in many countries around the world, very good educational opportunities, and therefore then they can have good jobs and have good careers. And so women used to have, on average, in many parts of the world, their first child when they were 16 or 17. But now today in the United States, for example, they have their first child when they're 29. So obviously they have fewer children. So uh, that is that is what has been going on with fertility. Now, uh, the other problem, of course, is that many women who want to pursue a career and uh, who have a good job, they are reluctant to have children because they know that they're going to be penalized in terms of promotions or in terms of pay if they have children. So they postpone it and they don't have the number that they would like to have. So we need to change the sequential model of life. We need to introduce more flexibility into the system also so that we can reverse this trend towards uh, lower fertility so that we can give women not just the opportunity to work, but also the opportunity to have the family life that they would like to have. That's also the perennial mindset. Another thing that is happening is, of course, increasing human lifespan, mm -hmm. health spans. And um, it has been happening for some time now. And uh, what makes now the critical moment to begin pivoting towards a post-generational society because of that? Well, because we have gotten to the point at which um, some people are going to be living more years in retirement than working. Um, so especially in Europe, like in France, where people retire on average very early at age 62 or 63. So they could be spending, you know, on average uh, 35 years in retirement. And that would be perhaps more than the number of years that they have worked. So there's several problems with that. The first problem is that it's unsustainable because the state pensions just don't have enough money, right, uh, to pay uh, retirees uh, a pension for such a long period of time. But secondly, because there are many problems associated with retirement. Retirement has been oversold. Uh, and we shouldn't uh, think that it's nirvana, that is the promised land, that is the kind of thing that we should aspire to. You know, people do get bored in retirement. They get disconnected from the social life. And it's always nice to be able to be active and to uh, contribute and to make some money on the side, of course. So I think uh, the single most important thing that we need to do right now uh, regarding uh, or, you know, um, decisions that we make when we approach age 50, age 60, age 70, is that uh, we still have a long time to live. And most of those years, at least two thirds of them, will be in good health. That's the other thing, right? So in other words, that today a 70 year old is in much better physical and mental shape than a 70 year old, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, which means that the lifestyle can be completely different. So all of these changes uh, essentially require us to approach our life in a different way. And of course, this is where lifelong learning also comes in. If you're going to retire, but then you still have a lot of years to live and you have energy and you can do great work. If you stop learning, it's not going to be a pleasant experience and so much value will not be created. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Lifelong learning is important, I think, for two reasons. I mean, the first one is that as human beings, we are learners and we should give ourselves as many possible opportunities uh, that are out there uh, to learn. But the second one is that a lot of things are changing in the world. The economy is changing, technology is changing. And, you know, from one day to the next, maybe your line of work, maybe your occupation becomes obsolete and you need to acquire new skills. This is now going to happen not just with manual skills, it's also going to happen with cognitive skills because of AI. 
So in other words, lifelong learning should be like something that everybody does. And that would introduce a further element of flexibility. I think that contributes also to the perennial way of life and to the perennial mindset. Lifelong learning is actually really, really important in this context. Mara, and as we are talking about lifelong learning, how do you feel people should be thinking about AI? Well, AI, AI is um, you know, a technology that is making a lot of progress. And I think we're only seeing the beginnings of how this is going to be changing the world. In many ways, it's going to be a big benefit for humanity. You know, we're, we're going to have uh, self-driving cars. Uh, I think uh, diagnosis in medicine and even uh, cures will be easier to find and easier to do with AI. Uh, I think AI also in education has a big future. So AI is going to bring many benefits to humanity. But at the same time, it's also going to uh, change the nature of jobs. And um, it's also going to produce a situation in which maybe we don't need as many people working uh, in a certain occupation and we need more people in other occupations. So it's gonna require then in other words, for people to change, to adjust, maybe to even switch careers. And so uh, I think we need to, as I said before, become more flexible, more adaptive because AI is really a technology that is gonna be truly revolutionary. So would you say your advice would be for people to learn instead of being afraid of how it will replace someone's job to think about how I can level up my output, level up my the value that I create using Absolutely, that. absolutely. I think what people need to do is to assume that maybe they won't work their entire lives in the same occupation or in the same kind of job, that maybe they'll switch careers. So once again, we go back to the flexibility idea. In other words, what people need to do is uh, plan for changing in the future. They need to change. They need to reinvent themselves. That is the only possible response to all of these transformations that we're seeing around us. We need to change. We need to adapt. And this is actually another very crucial skill that everyone needs, leaders need, your students need. Everyone needs uh, the ability to reinvent oneself. It's, it's really, really important. And, you know, some people may get lucky and they may be able to do uh, during their entire lives, um, you know, one thing. But I think most of us will need to change. We will need to shift. We will need to adjust to new situations. What advice would you give to someone who is not good at adapting to change? Well, obviously that um, there are uh, ways to um, acquire those skills. There are programs, not just offered by business schools, there are also online programs, which are many, some of them free, where they help you develop those kinds of leadership skills and um, psychological skills so that uh, you know, don't fear change, you don't fear you know, flexibility. Because a lot of people feel very comfortable doing what they're doing one day after the other. And if you ask them to do something else, they, you know, they, they start to uh, hesitate and, uh, and uh, they get stressed out. So it's, a, I think, both a leadership and a psychological skill. And uh, it is something that can be learned. I don't think it's something that we are born with. Uh, it is an acquired skill. Do you find your students struggling with ability to adapt to change and how you help them? Well, I think um, on average, they are certainly more flexible and more adaptable than, for example, my generation was. Um, if only because they have been exposed to a world that is changing much more quickly than, for example, when I was growing up. So I think on average, they're already quite prepared, but you still see differences. You see some people uh, you know, within my, my students in my classes uh, are much better at adapting and being flexible than others. 
And so, again, as a business school, for example, we do offer classes where they can learn those skills, how to be adaptive, how to change, and so on and so forth. And I think everybody should try to make a, uh, an effort uh, to become more so. Um, but the other uh, piece of advice is, you know, take it easy. Uh, don't uh, panic. Um, yes, the world is changing very quickly, but there's time. Um, you can adjust. There are ways of adjusting. You don't have to do or accomplish everything in one day. You can change more gradually over time. That is very true. And there are all kinds of things that you can do to help. One tip that I can quickly give to people who are struggling is when you're in a situation, let's say it's a meeting where you really feel very, very stressed and you don't know what to say. If you just imagine that you're looking at it from third person perspective, it will be much easier for you to see a different perspective and then come up with something that can help you navigate the situation. Exactly right. I think um, exposing oneself to many different kinds of things, not uh, only interacting with people like yourself, but rather trying to learn from other people, all of that is extremely important. All of that eventually will help you adjust or will make you more successful in life. Very true. Mara, so I wonder how you selected this topic for your most recent book. Well, I selected it because um, I've always been fascinated by this obsession that a lot of people have, especially here in the United States, with generations. We're always comparing young people to old people, millennials to uh, Generation X, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's kind of a silly thing to do because the boundaries separating one generation to, from the next uh, are arbitrary. Because most of the things that we say, for example, about millennials are cliches or stereotypes. And because at the end of the day, we should be trying to bring generations together to see how we can benefit from their collaboration, as opposed to trying to highlight the differences all the time. Let's speak a little bit about all the generations. So what actions can be taken today by all the generations? And some of our listeners would be leaders who are already close to retirement to benefit themselves during the midst of the societal changes and trends. So we discussed lifelong learning. Any other things you would like to mention here? Well, I think um, uh, people, let's say, in their 60s, in their 70s, in their 80s, what they need to do is think that um, they're now in the majority. So most people in the world will be like them, as opposed to what was going on before. There were more young people than older people. And therefore, they have more power and more influence. But that they should be focused on essentially living uh, the last uh, 20, 30, 40 years of their lives in an active way, with, a, with an active lifestyle, and that they should continue to be learners and that they shouldn't disconnect themselves from their social connections. Uh, I think uh, those are the things that I would tell them. We are also seeing friction between older and younger generations on a political, economic, and societal level. How does a perennial mindset decrease that friction or can help decrease that friction? Well, once again, if we uh, abandon the sequential model of life and we embrace the perennial mindset, I think um, we will see much progress in terms of intergenerational understanding. Because what I'm proposing is that we have multiple generations at work, that we have um, uh, teams at work that are diverse by age, because we know from research that they're more productive and more creative, um, that we have uh, people in their 60s, 70s still working, maybe in a flexible way, but still engaged and making contributions to, to society and the economy. Um, and uh, I think, uh, yes, the, the problems uh, that, that create those frictions are very clear, right? Younger people pay more taxes, but they don't get benefits. 
like healthcare or pensions, but at some point in the future, they will. So if they uh, also work in terms of, uh, um, you know, procuring uh, collaboration between generations, that eventually, at some time in the future, will also benefit them. So I think we just need to change our mindset about this. Uh, so the idea of categorizing people into generations is just a little bit silly and it's, it's not a good idea. It generates more frictions and more tensions. So we need to overcome that and instead focus on the collaborations, the potential for collaboration. Mara, and for our listeners who mostly managing teams within large organizations, what would you tell them why they need to pay attention to this topic and why they need to care about this topic and how they can implement some of the things that you are sharing with them today? Well, I think, um, you know, the most important thing is to experiment. Uh, so you're never going to get uh, anything right in life the first time around, or very few people do. So experiment with new things. Try to learn about other things. Uh, try to, as I said earlier, try to read about things that you know very little about. Try to interact with people who are not like yourself so that we can, you can, um, you know, gain entry into new social circles and access uh, new information. Um, always try to explore, uh, try to experiment. That's what I would tell people. So let's say someone has a team of 50 people. Mm -hmm. Let's say they're managing this team with an organization. What can they do on Monday morning differently? Well, what I think they should do is first uh, think about the composition of the team. Is it diverse enough by age, by other characteristics, so that you really obtain all of those advantages in terms of productivity and creativity? That's the first thing they should do, or whether they should bring in new people into the team. Secondly is, um, you know, they should, uh, once they have that diversity in place, they should look for ways in which they can leverage that diversity to be more creative, to be more productive. So try to, uh, you know, uh, utilize everybody's skills in the right way. And of course, for all of that, whoever is the team leader uh, must play a very important role in all of that. The other thing I would tell them is uh, don't make any assumptions. Uh, so always uh, re-examine the assumptions that you're making when you're thinking about a problem. And by all means, um, you know, try to collaborate as members of the team. It's, a, it's really uh, can be a win-win. How do you think they can cultivate this perennial mindset within the team? Well, I think um, the uh, perennial mindset is all about, as I just said, thinking and acting in a way that is not necessarily your age. So don't feel constrained by age. Don't think that because uh, you're of a certain age, you can no longer work or you can no longer learn. Uh, don't think that uh, if you're too young, then there are certain jobs that are not available to you. Today, we see CEOs, uh, we see people with very important jobs who haven't even turned 30, right? So especially in the tech sector. So uh, I think uh, the single most important thing is to change our mindset about uh, the role that age plays in our lives and that we are not constrained by age. We have been thinking for too long about age as a constraint, as something that uh, tells us what to do and what not to do. And I think it should be nearly irrelevant. Of course, there are certain things that we cannot do at certain ages, but for the most part, it's something that shouldn't be relevant. And in terms of practical steps, I'm trying to get some practical tips so that people who walk away after listening to this session can actually think, okay, I can implement this and this and this to improve the way my team functions. Yeah, so once again, what I would say is explore, experiment, talk to people uh, about how is it that you can reinvent yourself. Uh, think or assume that uh, certainly you will have to reinvent yourself several times during your lifetime. 
So don't be obsessed by what you're doing now. Uh, try to change, try to adapt. And think that life is very long and is getting longer. And also your health uh, is going to enable you to live many years uh, at full speed. Uh, so you're, you're going to be able to maintain your lifestyle if you take care of yourself for a very long period of time because everybody is living longer and uh, living more years healthier. So all of those things should make us um, reflect from the time we are, let's say, age 20 as to how we want to organize our life and always be ready to embrace uh, the uh, unexpected, something that happens in the world that maybe gives you new opportunities. Uh, that's the way I would put it. Mara, and as you were working on this book, were there any other areas related to perennial mindset which you still want to explore? You feel that I, I'm not fully understanding it yet or I still want to dig in and try to fully well, well, I think uh, there's been a lot of discussion about a number of uh, things and uh, uh, regarding this perennial mindset. And uh, I think uh, in the world, and I think uh, we need to uh, focus uh, so much more on some of them. Um, as we were talking about earlier, uh, this is not just so that uh, the people who are already successful uh, become even more successful. I also am proposing in the book that we change the way we live our lives and that organizations and companies change their ways because there are so many people who are left behind. So I was referring earlier to high school dropouts or to teenage mothers. Uh, we could also talk about uh, uh, you know, substance abusers. We would talk about uh, foster care children. So we need to uh, enable those people. Uh, together, there are about 60 million uh, here in the United States uh, who are living right now and having that situation in life. So we need to help them overcome those constraints, uh, those problems that they had at some point in their lives. That's another reason, right? It's not just making the successful even more successful. I also want to help those people who, for whatever reason, took the wrong turn in life or they were plainly unlucky uh, to help them you know, get ahead. 100% agree with you. It is so important. And I actually can really understand it also on my, based on my own experience because when I immigrated the first time, my education was could not be found in the database and had to restart. And I was already mid-20s then. So it mm -hmm. is tough to do. So do you feel that there will be a wide adoption of this, of this mindset? Uh, yes, because uh, we have no choice. Because uh, technological change and economic change uh, just uh, continues as uh, these big transformations so the older model, what I call the sequential model in the book, uh, was very good when things didn't change. Because as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, it was all about predictability. Uh, but that's not what we have today. What we have today is a world that is becoming more and more unpredictable by the day. We have uncertainty. And therefore, then, uh, we need to change our mindset. 100% agree with you. So you, of course, do a lot of work in, in understanding and figuring out what the future will look like. I wonder, based on your thinking, experience, and so on. What do you think the future of work will look like? Well, work, I think, is going to be so much more distributed spatially. So in other words, uh, we're going to see more hybrid work, remote and in-person work. We're going to see more work that is mediated by AI, meaning that uh, we don't work um, you know, uh, individually on a problem, that in addition to working in a team, we're also using computers, uh, AI tools, to get things done. So I think there's going to be a lot of symbiosis between AI and the human element at work. And I also see that uh, people are going to be not just having a few jobs um, in life, but perhaps switching careers once or twice uh, throughout their lives. 
And uh, if we look at it from perspective of an organization, how should an organization prepare to, to work with employees who have this mindset? Well, I think uh, companies and organizations, they need to realize that unless they change, they're going to be at a disadvantage because we all know that attracting talent is really important. And people in the end are going to be gravitating towards companies and organizations that offer them uh, all of these uh, features of the perennial way of life and way of working. So if companies or organizations don't change, then they're going to have a harder time into the future attracting talent. And that's the main reason why they should start thinking about changes right now. Very true. And then, of course, we cannot speak about perennial mindset without looking at it from perspective of potential of the post-generational consumer market. And my question to you is, what industries, companies, nations do you see best positioned to capture it? Well, look, uh, the consumer market is um, a very important part of the economy. It's like uh, here in the United States, it's uh, nearly 70% of gross domestic product. And uh, for the longest time, the younger age groups, people in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, were the largest segment in the market. But now, of course, um, very soon, within a few years, uh, the segment of people above the age of 60 will be the, the one with the largest purchasing power. Uh, but you see, marketing, advertising, all of these efforts that company or brands make to uh, sell their products uh, have been focusing on younger people. So I don't think the solution to the problem now is to, instead of focusing on younger people, is to focus on older people. I don't think that's good. I think what they should do is move beyond generations, move beyond age, and essentially practice marketing and practice advertising in a way that is post-generational, in a way that uh, doesn't really consider age, but rather focuses on what is the need and uh, also what is it that the product can do to address that need. And do you feel there are maybe some new products and services? Is there potential for that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, because uh, as, as we grow older, uh, our needs change. Uh, I think, for example, there's going to be an explosion in home robotics, for example. Um, but there's so many areas where I think uh, the changing structure of the population is going to generate a lot of entrepreneurial activity. And we're going to see new services and new products uh, being launched. So that, that's for sure. Uh, but I think also if we change the way when we're young, when we're in our 20s or 30s, that uh, we change the way in which we think about life, that's also going to generate new needs, right, in, uh, in terms of uh, uh, consumer purchases. Um, because uh, it's not the same when a 25-year-old just thinks about, oh, I'm going to try to save as much money because I want to retire as quickly as possible, as opposed to a 25-year-old who thinks, well, I really am not th really thinking about retirement or saving for retirement. What I want to be is a long life, uh, a lifelong learner. I want to uh, be always a learner. Well, that generates a demand for you know uh, lifelong learning um, solutions. So I think uh, if we change our mindset from the old mindset to the perennial mindset, I think there's going to be quite a revolution in consumer markets. It is exciting. Absolutely. What do you think are some of the obstacles to accelerating the post-generational society and economy? Well, I think uh, as human beings, we're always reluctant to change. So changing our mindset is always difficult. But even more importantly, I think governments, companies, and other kinds of organizations, uh, they're always um, prisoners of inertia. So they change very slowly, uh, if they change at all. And uh, it's been several decades that they've been you know, attracting talent, hiring talent, managing workers in a particular way. I think they need to change that. They used to classify workers by age and then treat them accordingly. So they wouldn't spend, for example, any money training people in their 50s, employees in their 50s, but they would spend all their money 
uh, on employees in their 20s. So all of that has to change. The mindset, not just of individuals like you and I, but also the mindset of companies, organizations, and also the government needs to change. Thank you, Mara. And uh, the last question from my side, before we speak about where people can learn about you and also anything you want to share is, and this is my favorite question to ask, it's not specifically about your current book, but a general question. Over the last few years, what were two, three aha moments, realizations that changed the way you look at life or the way you look at business? Well, I think uh, the first one uh, certainly has been the uh, rearrangement of uh, power and influence in the world. Uh, you know, we have China, we have India, we have uh, other markets becoming more important. Europe and the United States, of course, are still important, but not as dominant as they were in the past. And that, as you know, has changed financial services, it has changed uh, markets, it has changed uh, the patterns of technology development in the world. This has had many important implications for businesses. I think the other one, of course, is the obvious one, which is technological change. How, for example, AI has changed the way in which we do marketing or we do advertising, we do human resource management, we do technology development, and uh, needless to say, we also do finance, right? All of that has changed, right? Um, all of those functional areas within within companies. But for me, the biggest aha moment uh, really ha has been, I think, when um, you know we realized uh, in the world uh, some years ago that we were in deep trouble in terms of uh, continuing to do things in the same way uh, with the um, uh, the way in which we consume and we use energy, and that in the end, uh, you know, might actually. Um, turn planet Earth into an uninhabitable place. And I'm referring, of course, to the climate emergency. I think for me, that has been the, the biggest aha moment, right? And realizing that this is going to be really difficult. This is a big challenge because you see most of the growth right now in terms of consumption of energy is not in Europe and the United States. It's in emerging markets. But of course, those emerging markets, they want to grow. They want to grow their economies. They want to consume more because they still have a lot of poor people. And we cannot tell them, well, those poor people should stay poor because otherwise the planet will warm too quickly. Uh, so this is a very challenging problem. Uh, we need to, at the same time, uh, you know, bring people out of poverty, but also take care of the planet. That is very true. Mauro, and uh, is there anything that you wish I asked you and I didn't? And also, where can our listeners learn more about your work, get your book, anything you want to share? Okay, well, um, I would say the one thing that we didn't discuss uh, at length uh, was uh, inheritance. You know, there is all of these um, illusions that I think, I think some people have right now, thinking that the baby boomers have a lot of money, and then they're going to be inheriting a lot of money. And, you know, the baby boomers are living longer, uh, so they may actually spend a lot of that money uh, before they, they pass away. Uh, but not only that. Uh, there's also the possibility that uh, inheritance will skip one generation. So instead of uh, the uh, uh, children being uh, the inherited the, the heirs, it might be the grandchildren. So that's a topic that we haven't discussed, but it also speaks to very interesting intergenerational dynamics that are unfolding right now in many parts of the world. And uh, just that, uh, you know, if people want to uh, keep on having this conversation, if they want to learn more about these topics, of course, there's the book, uh, which will be uh, uh, published uh, in uh, late August. Uh, but they can also find me on LinkedIn. And uh, I always respond to people if they send me a message on LinkedIn. So they should uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. And then we can take uh, the conversation further over there. Thank you, Mara. Thank you so much for taking this time to share with us your thoughts, uh, your work. 
And for everyone listening today, our guest today again has been Mara Gulen. Check out Mara's new book. It's called The Perennials, The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society. And if you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies, free download, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. Take care, everyone. Looking forward to speak to you very soon. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.